All right, if you've got a Bible this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to get right into the study this morning. We're going to need every ounce of time that we have as we continue our study through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is not a, a, uh, it's not a study for the faint of heart, I guess is what I would say. Uh, man, I, I realized as, as we're, the further we get into this study, man, we could spend so much time. Uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, really just exhausting what God has in these seven churches. Uh, let me read verses 18 down to 20, 26, 27 uh, in, the, in the text. Let me remind you of what we're studying this morning, and then we'll hit a quick review. Uh, we're in the church of Thyatira. That's the, stu- the study that we're in right now, the fourth church that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Let me just give you the text and remind you what we're talking about. Verse 18 Christ says unto the church, uh, unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, who, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit uh, fornication and to eat things offered unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts." And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But I say unto you and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put uh, upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and, and we'll stop there. We'll, we'll need to finish that probably next week. Let me remind you, we're studying seven churches that are in the book of Revelation, and Jesus Christ authored and had sent to these seven churches seven different letters. And these seven letters to these seven churches, for us, number one, historically, were real churches that existed in the first century, but they also represent for us seven types of churches that have represented for all of the church history. As we as we examine our church, uh, the truth is, as we look at these seven churches, we probably find that our church lines up with one of these seven types of churches. And then, and then thirdly, as we look at all of church history, and that's the graphic on the screen, these seven churches represent the entirety of church history. And when I say church history, what I mean is from the book of Acts, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, till the rapture of the church, you can take that entire period of history, which, by the way, we're still living in, but we can take that entire piece of history and break it up into seven periods. And, and we can see that through each of these seven churches, there's a characteristic period of time in which the things in God's Word have played out in history. And so that's kind of cool because God's Word is prophetic. It, it can tell the future. It can show what's going to happen. And then, and then fourthly, these seven churches also have a tribulation context in the sense that there's going to be people, I don't believe the church, the bride of Christ goes through the tribulation, but there 
or a group of people in the Bible called the church. That was the nation of Israel in Acts chapter 7. They were called the church in the wilderness. They were a group of assembled people that God was moving from one place to another place, and, and, he, and he fed them, and he protected them, and he wanted to get them to a promised land. Well, that's going to be the nation of Israel in the tribulation. And so there is, as we study this, there is some strong tribulation uh, context in each of these seven churches as well. But again, we as the New Testament church, the believers in Christ, we don't, we don't go through the tribulation. And so, and so we just want to take note of that because there's going to be things in these seven churches that you and I can't directly apply to us. And, and that's where we know the, 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 the application breaks down. And so we've studied the church of Ephesus, and that ca- carries us from 90 to 200 A.D. Of that church, Christ said that they left their first love. And then we study the church of Smyrna, and that church received no correction because they had to be faithful to the death. It was a time of great persecution against the church. And then last couple of weeks, we've studied the the church at Pergamos that that takes us in history from 325 to 500 AD, and that's where Satan changed his tactic. Instead of coming all in all out against the church, he decided to counterfeit the church. And Satan married a political religious system to the church and in Pergamos the the name even means much marriage Satan established a seat in Pergamos and he absolutely had a position of authority of of authority both politically and religiously and we studied in history a man named Constantine who who was a Roman emperor who had a false conversion but through his false conversion established a political religious nation, which would have been Rome. The devil is really good. He's the greatest counterfeiter there ever has been. And he'll take what's true of God's word and true of the character of Christ, and he will pervert it and counterfeit it. And it'll seem religious, but it doesn't make it right. And so God, uh, God is wanting us to understand how not only these churches served him and were faithful to him but God wants us to understand how Satan works through history and and so now we've entered into the Thyatira church period which represents for us the period of 500 to 1000 AD and we talked about how the church of Thyatira number one uh, was in a very unique city as a matter of fact this city of Thyatira is only mentioned really in two places in the Bible it's mentioned in Revelation chapter 1 and 2 and then it's mentioned in Acts chapter 16 And in both instances of the mention of the city of Thyatira, in each instance, it's connected to a woman. So in Revelation chapter 2, it's connected to a woman named Jezebel. And in Acts chapter 16, those of you that were here last week, it's connected to a woman named Lydia. And, And what's very interesting is the only two times in Scripture it shows up, there's a woman that's connected to this city. And God wants to show us something. Lydia was a successful woman. She was a seller of purple. She represents for us the virtuous woman out of Proverbs 31. She was a fearful woman because she worshiped God. She was a reachable woman because God opened her heart. And she was a teachable woman because she listened to the things that Paul was preaching to her. She is a picture for you and I of the church, the bride of Christ, the, the, the espoused bride of Christ, the Gentile bride that has been a spouse to Jesus Christ. And then she was a faithful woman because after she got saved and was baptized, she opened her home to those apostles. 
and she wanted to minister to them. Lydia is not only a picture of the church, the true bride of Christ, but she's a picture of a Christian that rightly responds to God's word. You see, the truth is, every one of us this morning are either like Lydia or we're like Jezebel. You're either on one side of that fence or the other. Jezebel was not a successful woman, but she was a seducing woman. As a matter of fact, we're going to see it today that she seduced God's servants to commit fornication and to put things in their mouth that would ultimately condemn them. They were, they were eating things sacrificed to idols. She was a fearless woman because she had no fear of the Lord. She was unreachable because she couldn't repent. She was unteachable. As a matter of fact, she was the one teaching in the church of Thyatira. She was a self-proclaimed prophetess. But what she was teaching was false doctrine. And she was an unfaithful woman because she wasn't full of faith. She was full of heresy. And so those two women represent not only two religious systems that profess to be Christian, but they represent two types of people. They represent two types of people. And you're either a Lydia this morning that gives heed to God's word, and you're teachable and faithful, or you're just a Jezebel who's just religious and operating without the fear of the Lord, who's unteachable and unfaithful, oh, by the way, even if you're sitting in this room. Because Jezebel was in the, the church of Thyatira. And so which one are you this morning? We asked that question last week, and I'll ask it again this week. And so we learned something very interesting about that city. And then number two, Christ reveals himself a certain way to each of these seven churches. And it's what that church needed to grab hold of to overcome the difficulties that they were facing. Christ revealed himself as the Son of God. And so he revealed himself to the church of Thyatira as God in the flesh, the Son of God who bore the image of God bodily. And it represents Christ's deity and authority over the church. Because in that church in Thyatira, there was a woman claiming to be a prophet. <laughs> she was a religious system. But man, she was motivated by the devil himself. And Christ just had to clear this space and say, let me tell you something. There's only one God. And it's him. He is the son of God. He, he used the term, not son of man, messianic term. He used the term, the son of God. By the way, that's the only time in the book of Revelation that that phrase shows up. And then he reveals himself having eyes like a flame of fire. And we talked about how that represents Christ's justice because, it, because his eyes of fire, listen, behold both the evil and the good in this world. And there's nothing that we can hide from Christ because his eyes are like fire. They're, they're able to discern and to distinguish even the thoughts and intents of our heart. And then we talked about Christ's feet, that they're like fine brass. And those feet, man, as you read the Bible, Christ's feet are going to do some things. Number one, they're going to split the Mount of Olives at his second coming. We find that in Zechariah chapter 14. Christ's feet are going to crush the serpent's head in Genesis chapter 3. But Isaiah 63 also tells us that Christ's feet are going to crush sinners. And man, that's a humbling thing to hear. And it represents for us Christ's judgment, his righteous judgment, because he has to judge sin. Now, all of that's review from last week. And what we said was every one of these churches, we follow a basic outline that, that we understand something about the church, and then we understand something about Christ. And then thirdly, we understand that Christ sometimes commends this church. And so we're going to look at the commendation this morning to the church 
of Thyatira. If Christ has anything good to say, we want to hear it. And we want to hear it because we, we want to learn from that as a local church. So what did Christ say about this church? Look at verse 19. He says, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. And so let's stop for just a second and consider what Christ is commending this church at Thyatira about. Because if we're good stewards of God's word, God has some positive things to say. And we as a local church can learn from that. We can glean some things. What are the things that when Christ looks at a church, man, the things that catches his eye and his heart. What are the things that, that he commends so that we can be a church that he can also commend? Uh, that ought to be our motivation, okay? And listen, they lived in some challenging times. We'll get to the Jezebel in just a second. Man, they, they were fighting an uphill battle, but yet they were faithful with some things. So in your notes, number one, listen, Thyatira was a laboring church because he says, I know thy works. And, and the church ought to be working. You don't work for your salvation, but you work because you're saved. You labor in the ministry that God's given you. And in the midst of all this mess, all the persecutions that have been happening, e even the marrying of the church to the world in the Pergamos church period, in Thyatira, they're still working in the midst of Satan's all-out attack. They're still laboring, even though Satan has counterfeited true biblical Christianity. And that ought to motivate us. Because I don't know if you've looked around. Christianity is kind of crazy. You hear me? I mean, I mean, listen, we got every brand, every flavor, every doctrine, every... Man, the, the extremes of Christianity in our culture, the spectrum is tremendous. And, and man, I don't know about you, but when I look at it and listen to it and, and try to understand what's going on, sometimes it discourages me because what's the point? We're fighting an uphill battle. Well, listen, Thyatira was fighting an uphill battle, but they continued to labor. Even, even knowing that Satan now has a seat of authority and a false woman named Jezebel teaching false doctrine, this church still labored. Christ said, I know thy works. Number two, Thyatira was a loving church. Because as he says, not only do I know thy works, I know thy charity. And that's the Greek word agape, right? We, we know that. It's love in action. It's love that, that actually produces action. Charity is important for a church, just like it's important for a Christian. Christ recognized that about that church. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13 says, Now abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is what? And listen, every one of us, hopefully have faith. Faith is your past where you put your faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, every one of you ought to have a testimony of when you heard the fact that you were a sinner, that, that your sin separated you from God, that Christ died for your sin, and that through belief in his finished work on the cross, you could be reconciled back to God. That moment of faith happened at a time and a place in your life. And that's, that's your past. And if you don't have that testimony, let me encourage you today, you need to consider putting your faith and trust in Christ. You didn't evolve into a Christian. You didn't grow into a Christian. You came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by putting your faith in his finished work at a point in history, at a point in time. For me, it was July 11th, 1997. I was 21 years old. And you may not know the exact date or, or the exact age, but you know 
if you know, you know you were a sinner. And you were Christless and hopeless and helpless. And somebody preached the gospel to you, or you read it in a tract, or you read it in the word of God. And the Bible says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And you recognize that there's forgiveness in Christ. That is your past. And listen, faith abides from that point forward in your life. The second thing is hope. And hope is our future. Because we're looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. So your faith is your past and your hope is your present. And can I just tell you, I hope I see Christ today. Now some of you, that statement just bothered. Because you've already got lunch plans. You've got career plans. You've got family plans. You have personal enjoyment plans. Well, I've I, I got to go play golf. I've got to go fishing. I've got to go on vacation. Man, the Lord can't come today. Listen, God tells us that our hope is, is our, our looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And man, I hope you have hope. And listen, if the thought of Christ coming back today disrupts your heart and soul, well, it's probably something to take note of and consider. Why do I feel that way? Why would I be ashamed or why would I not want the Lord to come today? Why would I not want the Lord to get the glory that he's due today? That's not even in the message, but that's free and it's good. So faith is our past. Hope is our future. But listen, charity is our present. You see, charity is our present and it's the greatest of these Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14 says, Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. In other words, the bond of maturity, the bond of completeness. You see, without charity, a Christian won't be able to hold together the other things that he's to put on. And by the way, God has some other things for you to put on as a believer in Christ. And God, God wants us to understand that without charity, we won't be able to hold those things together. As a Christian... Or as a church. We have to have charity. The church at Thyatira had charity. And the Lord saw it and recognized it. Number three, Thyatira was an uplifting church. Because he says, I know thy works and charity. And then he says, I know your service. And that same word is translated other places in scripture as ministry or relief. It's the same word that we get the word deacon from, diakonia. Not that the Greek matters, but, but I want you to understand that when he says, I recognize your service, they were still doing ministry and offering relief in areas that needed attention. This church was serving in the midst of affliction. Remember, the name Thyatira means odor of affliction. Now, let me ask you a question. Isn't affliction generally, when we experience affliction both personally and corporately, Generally, isn't that the excuse that we use to stop serving? We're suffering. Life is hard. We're being afflicted. We're fighting the uphill battle. Many times in a Christian's life when things get hard, that's the, the off-ramp to service and ministry. That's the off-ramp for providing relief to other people because you don't know what I'm going through. Okay, I don't. But I do know that, that affliction comes, and that's never an excuse to stop serving. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 4, Paul says, the Word of God says that, that afflictions actually help prove our capacity to minister. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 4, it, it, it says, But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God, listen, 
in much patience, in what? Afflictions, in necessities. Oh, I'll, I'll serve the Lord when I have everything I need. How about you start serving the Lord in the midst of your need, and Christ can be the one that is what you need. I mean, listen, I don't know where we get the idea that circumstances have to be perfect for us to serve the Lord. As a matter of fact, as I read the Bible, every person, every apostle, every disciple of Christ generally had a pretty rough life. They suffered some things. This world is not your friend. Neither is it your home. And so listen, this church, man, they, they serve, they approve themselves as ministers of God, even in the midst of their affliction. You see, we've got to put an eternal perspective on our suffering and affliction. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says that for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And so listen, I don't know what you're going through this morning, but God does. And God wants you to be reminded that in the midst of your afflictions, both individually and corporately, number one, it's a light affliction. Light compared to what? Well, I would say it's light compared to what Christ suffered for us. Because nobody in this room is having to bear the sin of the world. So anything less than that, we, we got a pretty good deal. Does that make sense? Christ is the one that bore the afflictions and the sufferings and the sin for us. And, and listen, when God looks at our life and when we look at our life, we have to measure our affliction in light of eternity. And God says, you know what? It's light affliction. It's light. It's light. Number two, it's temporal. The Bible says it's only for a moment. It's temporal. It's not eternal. And so we need to understand that afflictions give us the opportunity to prove ourselves as good stewards and good ministers of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy, but it's not supposed to be. Because Christ is faithful. He endured, he endured suffering and affliction. He continued his ministry faithfully. He gives us an example. We were to follow in his footsteps. Number four, Thyatira was a church with light. Because Christ says, I see your faith. They, they had light. They had a revelation of God's word in the midst of really bad doctrine. Some of those people at Thyatira had right faith. We'll talk about that in just a second. But there were some people in Thyatira that never adhered to the doctrine of Jezebel. They kept their right faith. We know from Romans 10 and verse 17, the Bible tells us faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Paul said at the end of his ministry in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. And so, man, Christ looks at this church and he's like, yeah, man, you're, you're afflicted, but I see you serving. And in the midst of all that odor of affliction, I see your faith. You're, you're not giving adherence to the false doctrine that's prevalent in your culture and in your church. Number five, Thyatira was a long-suffering church because Christ also noted their patience. That's the thing you never pray for. You learn that as a young Christian. You mess up and you pray for it once and then you endure some hard things to get patience and you realize I probably should stop praying for patience. <laughs> Listen, and that's part, that's part of a mature believer, right? We, we, we have to learn to just not give up even in hard times. We know that, that God's word tells us in the last days perilous times are going to come. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 
2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 said, even in the last days, that, that people aren't going to endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, the culture of ministry in the last days is going to be very difficult. If somebody just stands up with a Bible and says, Thus saith the Lord, book, chapter, and verse, rightly divided in context as sound doctrine. Well, people don't want to hear that. And, but what they want to hear is teachers having itching ears. And that's exactly what was happening in Thyatira. It was perilous times, and there was no endurance of sound doctrine. And there was a, a woman that was actually propagating false doctrine. A lot of people were following her. Okay, well, well in order to, to endure that, you've got to have patience. James chapter 1 and verse 4 says, Let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting what? Nothing. And again, man, listen, uh, to encourage you, this is not to discourage anybody. We need to learn patience. We need to, we need to have patience perfect us. You see, patience in a Christian's life has a perfecting work. Now, that word perfect in your King James Bible doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean complete and mature. And most Christians are really interested in, in becoming mature and complete as long as it doesn't have anything to do with patience. But patience is the thing that brings about the perfecting work. And, and it says in James chapter 1 and verse 4 that we have to let it work. We have to let it work. We just came off a disciple conference, discipleship conference last week, and, and we kind of taught through these, these seven levels of spiritual maturity, and we talked about the seven things to add to your faith to grow out of Second Peter chapter 1. And one of those things is patience. And, and for some of us that are discipling other people, when we see our disciple begin to experience discomfort, we take away that discomfort to their detriment. In this church, when some of you begin to do ministry and it gets hard, immediately what you want is for the, the pain and the suffering and the uncomfortableness to stop. And the best thing that I can do for you is to let it have its perfecting work in your life. Because that's what makes us mature. And, and if we're not patient, that means we're impatient. And when you're impatient, you want to get ahead of God's timing in your life. That happened to Moses, by the way, in the Old Testament. He had to learn some things on the backside of a desert before he really was ready to lead God's people. He was impatient. He acted out in his flesh instead of the power of God. And without patience, listen, we're going to get ahead of God's timing. And secondly, without patience, we're going to operate without dependency on God. You see, some of us need to learn the lesson that the, at the end of the day in ministry, the only person I can trust is not Jay, it's not Cody, it's not Colin, it's not Corey. The person I have to trust is the Lord. And at the end of the day, God has to do this through my life. Otherwise, it won't be accomplished. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, it says, Not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. It's just going to be tough. 
But God is doing something in your life. When tribulation, when, when difficult circumstances come into your life, when uncontrollable things happen, that tribulation is trying to work patience in your life, and that patience is going to work experience, and that experience is going to work hope. And the Bible says, hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. You see, some Christians have never passed the test of tribulation, and I don't mean the tribulation. I just mean any difficult thing that comes into your life. Or any ministry opportunity that actually was harder than what you thought. Listen, some Christians have never passed the test of tribulation. Henceforth, they have not worked patience. And because of that, they have no experience. And I can always tell, man, because it's like the broken record that just keeps repeating we can always watch and see man as young christians begin to grow there comes a point where where patience is required to continue growing and a lot of people dig their heels in right there and they don't pass the test and they don't ever fully let god's holy spirit and god's word and dependency on god perfect them so they can be effective ministers I'd like to tell you everybody passes the test, but not everybody passes the test. Thyatira passed the test. Christ looked at this church and he said, I see your patience. It's hard to, to operate where you're living and breathing and operating and, and, and trying to do ministry. It's difficult, but I see your patience. He's perfecting that church. Number whatever. Number six, Thyatira is a lasting church. And what I mean by that is when Christ looks at this church, he says, I see thy works. You say, wait a second, we already said that. Well, we did see that, but look what he says. He said, I see your works, and the last to be more than the what? Than the first. In other words, their last works were more than their first works. And that's an interesting observation. Because in these days, in this culture of Christianity we live in, people get saved they usually get really excited about the Lord. They usually get involved in church. They, they, they serve, and then they grow a while. They get discipled. They get connected. And, and listen, after they've done that for maybe five years or ten years or twenty years, they grow a little bit. They start to figure some things out. They have some ministry experience. They teach a class. They disciple some people. And they get to a point where they look back on their life and they say, you know what? God's used me to do some things. Maybe I've done enough. And then they begin to sit around. So much so that their, their works in their last days are actually less than their works in their first days. Hello? You see, but that wasn't the testimony of Thyatira. When, when Christ looked at that church, Thyatira had some last works that were more than the first works. And that motivates me, that encourages me, that challenges me. Because listen, we, we don't cross the finish line until we take our last breath, man, or until the rapture happens. So, so there's, no, there's no point in our Christian walk where we have the right to just check out and stop ministering. And, and listen, can I just tell you, listen, again, this is encouraging. I'm try, I, I just want you to hear my heart. Can I just tell you that when you finally figure out how to put your Bible together, that's not the time to, start, to stop working. As a matter of fact, when you finally figure out how to, how to rightly divide this book and teach doctrine, there's younger people that need to hear it. 
when you figure out how to stay married to the same man or the same woman for 40 or 50 years, that's not the time to stop working. Because there are some young couples in this church that need some aged men and women to lead them and to teach them how to have a marriage that honors Christ. We need some people that will teach us how to raise our kids to be faithful to the Lord. We need some husbands that will teach some of us young men how to love our wives. We need some aged women that will teach our women how to love and respect their husbands. You see, the time to check out is never. And the last works ought to be more than the first works because you finally know God. You know the Word of God. You have some things figured out. You're valuable to the ministry. Psalm 92, verses 13 and 14 says, Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall bring forth fruit in old age, and they shall be fat and flourishing. In other words, you still got potential to bear fruit. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, and here's, I think here's the issue for many of us as we've been around church. You've been a Christian for 20 years, which is kind of weird for me to say, man, I've, I've been a believer now for 24 years, which is, which is kind of weird. So that's over, over half of my life. I've been a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ. Okay, so that, that kind of gives me a weird perspective. But after you walk with the Lord and, and, and you grow and you serve in ministry, there comes a point where you get tired. Now, if you're not tired, come hang out with me and Cody and Colin during the week, and we'll make sure you get tired. We'll, we'll, we'll give you the behind-the-curtain view of ministry. <laughs> It'll be great be real great there is a lot of food involved but there's some other challenges too can i just tell you galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 is, is for us let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not and i dare say man that, that many times as christians we tend to faint and because of that we stop laboring thyatira's last works were more than their first works. Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 and verse 62, Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And, And the danger and challenge for us is many times that we, especially if you've been around for a minute, you're able to look back at past accomplishments, past victories, past achievements, successful discipleship relationships, successful ministry, successful leadership. You're able to look back and and, and you look through your list of accomplishments and praise the Lord for that. But Christ said we aren't to look backwards in the accomplishments. We're to look forward to the field because there's a whole field in front of us that needs laborers. And we need to be faithful. And, And so, man, when Christ looked at this church, he saw faithfulness. So much so that their last works or even more than their first works. Praise the Lord for that. And now as we begin the third hour of the sermon, I'm just kidding. <laughs> let's, uh, let's very quickly introduce this character named Jezebel. Because just as Christ commended this church, number four, he had some correction against this church. There were, there were actually some things going on that when Christ saw it, he's like, okay, I can't, I can't leave that untouched I have to deal with this and so verse 20 is what begins the correction of the church at Thyatira he says notwithstanding I have a few things against thee 
Okay, so now he's, he's complimented them. Here's what you're doing good. But now Christ is going to, to come against this church and say, okay, I've got a few things against thee. Because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things all, uh, sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. So we need to do a little Bible study on this woman named Jezebel. Because not only does she show up in Revelation chapter 2, but she shows up in your Old Testament. And so let's talk about this. We're going to trace Jezebel through the Bible, number one, historically. Because all the way back in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 30 and 31, we, we find the first mention of this woman named Jezebel. In verse 30, it says, Ahab, he's one of the kings of Israel, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And, and so we need to just do some history real quick on who this woman is historically. And then we got to figure out why she's showing up in Revelation chapter 2, because she actually died in the Old Testament, okay? So this woman, Jezebel, number one, her name means Baal exalts. And if you know anything about your Bible, Baal is a pagan god that was worshipped by, by Israel. It, it's a false god, a false deity, paganistic worship. And, uh, and so these people are not Jehovah God followers. They're actually worshiping Baal. Her name literally means Baal exalts. She's the daughter of a, a man named Ethbaal, who's the king of the Zidonians. His name means living under Baal's favor. That's what Ethbaal means, living under Baal's favor. And so, man, this family is, you know, if I can put it in modern day vernacular, jacked up. <laughs> These are some jacked up people, man, that they are worshiping. Uh, Baal, they're worshiping this pagan religious system. They're from the Zidonians. Who are the Zidonians in the Bible? Well, well we know just, again, comparing Scripture with Scripture, they're, they're the descendants of Ham, just like Nimrod was. You can go back to Genesis chapter 10, verse 15. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And you can go down to chapter 10 and verse 19, and uh, you find that uh, in, the, in the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon. So not only a person, but also a city. Uh, they were of the descendants of Ham, just like Nimrod. They should have been driven out of the land of Canaan. So when Joshua takes the nation of Israel into the promised land, they were to, they were to drive out all the pagan nations, including the Zidonians. You find that in Joshua 13 and verse 6. God promised to drive them out. Israel failed to, to cling to God's promises. These people also worshipped the goddess Ashtoreth. Okay, and you find that in 1 Kings 11 and verse 5. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians. And so, and so this woman deity, which we've already talked about in previous lessons, is receiving worship of men. She's the wife of Ahab, and this dude was a wicked king, man. I mean, I mean he was evil. I mean... It, to say that, hey, the sins of Jeroboam would have been enough, but this dude like multiplied that. He's horrible. He's an absolutely wicked king of Israel. He absolutely is one of the greatest types of the Antichrist in all of the Old Testament. 
He led the entire northern kingdom of Israel to follow and to worship and to serve Baal. And this is his wife, Jezebel. Real nice lady, I'm sure. Nobody names their daughter Jezebel, right? I mean, nobody does that. I mean, just a clue, by the way, if you, if you are not a Christian or haven't read the Bible, that's a bad name. Don't, don't, don't do that to your daughter type thing, right? What we find historically is she's against the prophet Elijah, and, and we find that in 1 Kings chapter 19. And so this woman is a Baal worshiper. Man, she is absolutely against the things of God. She's against the prophet of God. 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, chapter 18 is when Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel and, and deals with all those false prophets of Baal and, man, you know, the whole scenario where they build two altars and you guys cry out to your God and I'll cry out to my God and whichever one answers by fire, he's the one true God. You guys remember that story? And, uh, you know, they, you know, you know, Elijah's kind of like pretty, pretty gutsy dude, by the way. Like, they're, they're, like, screaming out to their pagan gods and cutting themselves and all this stuff, and he's, like, mocking them. He's just, like, making fun of them. You know, there's, like, 850 of those dudes total, and he's just him up there, and he's just, like, laughing at them. Like, your God's got to be asleep or in the bathroom or something. Like, he's not, he's not answering. I mean, Elijah's a stud. That's all there is to it. And so then, you know, his God answers by fire, consumes the altar, consumes the water, consumes the stones, and then if that wasn't enough... Elijah said, round those dudes up, and I'm going to kill all of them. Killed 850 of them. I mean, stud. Then in chapter 19, verse 1, word gets back to Jezebel that Elijah had done this. And she's like, man, I'm going to kill that dude today. And he ends up running. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but, but that shows you the wickedness of this woman and the power that this woman had. Man, she was absolutely against the prophet of God. She was a self-proclaimed prophetess. By the way, Elijah, just for those of you that are students of the Bible, shows up again in the tribulation period. Just like in the Old Testament, that woman, that false religious system, came after him and wanted to kill him. That thing's going to happen again in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 6, because Moses and Elijah show up again, and a false religious system is going to kill them. Jezebel also killed a man named Naboth and stole his vineyard. You see that in 1 Kings chapter 21, and, and again, just for time's sake, I, I gave you the reference, I think, in your notes. But, but this man named Naboth, he was a Jezreelite, he had a vineyard, and that vineyard was given to him from his father and from his father. And so this was part of his inheritance. A and Ahab wanted his vineyard, and he said, hey, why don't you sell me your vineyard? It's right next to my house. I would like to have your vineyard. And and Naboth said, no, bro, this is part of my inheritance. I'm not selling it to you. Well, Jezebel found Ahab, you know, pouted and went home and, you know, because he's a sissy. And, and he told his wife, because that's what you do, right? When you get your feelings hurt, you go home and tell your wife, I guess. And so some of you do, anyway, whatever. So, and so Jezebel hears that Ahab wants this vineyard. And she's like, oh, I'll fix that. And so she manipulates the situation he had the vineyard by right because it was part of his inheritance. Jezebel hired false witnesses against Naboth, and they accused him of blasphemy against God and against the king himself. And then they, they charged him falsely. They convicted him falsely. They carried him out the, outside the city, and they killed him. And they stole his vineyard. Now, if you've read the New Testament, 
God just painted a picture for you out of 1 Kings chapter 21. Because Jesus Christ also had been given a vineyard of his father. And that vineyard was the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah 5 and verse 7, it says, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And Christ had been given a vineyard, but the devil wanted it. And so what did he do? Well, you know from John chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 14 that Christ was falsely accused of blasphemy. As a matter of fact, those religious leaders said, hey, we're not going to try to stone you for for good works. We're going to stone you because you're making yourself God. What did they stone Naboth for? They stoned him for blasphemy. Jesus Christ was also falsely accused of being against the king. In John chapter 19, Pilate sought to release him, and the Jews cried out, saying, If if thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. And they accused Christ of speaking against the king. John 19 and verse 15, They cried, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but but Caesar. And Christ was carried outside the city, outside the camp, according to Hebrews 13 and verse 13, and he was killed. And that, that woman Jezebel attempted to deliver that vineyard to Ahab, who's a picture of the Antichrist. And God gave you a little prophecy there in 1 Kings chapter 21. That's a wicked woman, man historically do you guys have 10 minutes can i get can i have 10 minutes you guys have 10 minutes you know historically that woman died she she was judged in the old testament she died we'll talk about more of that next week devotionally let's get back to thyatira because we we see some semblance of who jezebel is but now devotionally as we land in thyatira there's a woman named jezebel is it a real woman well it possibly could have been poor choice of name by the way of any parent, like whoever, if she was a real woman in Thyatira, man, her parents are just idiots, you know. They just hadn't read the Bible. You don't name your daughter that. If she wasn't a real person, what she is is absolutely a religious system. And here's what's happened in Thyatira. Devotionally, that woman Jezebel had a position of authority. She had a position of authority in the church. As a matter of fact, she called herself a prophetess. Now, we have to deal with this because, because there's only one other instance in all of your New Testament where a woman is called a prophetess, and that's in Luke chapter 2, and it's a woman named Anna. Anna was a prophetess waiting on the coming of the Lord, serving in the house of God. She was a widow. She was looking for the redemption in Jerusalem, which is their Messiah, which is Christ. She's the only person, only other person in the New Testament that... that is named as a prophetess. By the way, Anna is a prophetess. Jezebel is a self-proclaimed prophetess. Note the distinction. Anna is still serving in the temple, and she's operating under an Old Testament economy. Because before Christ dies, you're still in the Old Testament. It doesn't matter if you're in one of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are Old Testament books until the death of Christ. That's a, that's a division that is clear scripturally. Hebrews chapter 9 says where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. And so the New Testament doesn't begin until the death of Christ. So we can't go back to Luke chapter 2 and say, well, the prophetess is a legitimate role in the church. 
and use Anna as a, as, a, as a proof text for that. As a matter of fact, you're still in the Old Testament. What's interesting about prophetesses, at least in the New Testament, is uh, there's, there's no other one mentioned. That's, a, that's an interesting observation. There's also not a single piece of Scripture that was ever inspired to and preserved by a prophetess or a woman. There's not a single apostle that was a woman. And again, this is not, a, this is not an anti-woman message. This is an observation. What was happening in Thyatira, Christ was absolutely against. And we have to pay attention. Man, what was happening? Jezebel, this woman, has been given a position of authority. Number two, that the church at Thyatira was rebuked because that woman was teaching. Well, that's very interesting to me. So whoever is teaching the Word of God in the church has the authority. And by the way, God delegated that authority to the office of a bishop, a pastor, or an elder. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And the issue is not value. Now, I know we live in a culture where we don't even know what men and women are anymore because none of us are biologists. I know that. But God knows. God knows. And God has reserved the office of the bishop, the pastor, and the elder for a man, just as he's reserved the role of a husband for a man. God knows the difference. And we don't need a biology degree to figure it out. It's sad that our Supreme Court nominees can't even figure that out, by the way. The people that are going to be governing the highest court in this country don't know the difference between a man and a woman. You probably have just disqualified yourself. You probably have just disqualified yourself. So, so God has a standard that, that in the authority of the church, as it relates to those teaching and preaching God's word, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. You say, well, that's just old, that's old cultural ref, reference and relevance. Well, if you say that, you don't believe every word of God, number one, is pure. And you don't believe it's perfectly preserved. And number three, you don't think it's applicable at any point in history other than then. Okay, Titus chapter 2 tells us that women can teach in the church. But it's very specific. As a matter of fact, it says in Titus 2 verses 3 to 5 that aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. There it is that they may teach the young women, here it is, to be sober, to love their husbands. And by the way, if you're a young woman in this church, you need an aged woman investing in your life. They may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. And man, we live in crazy land in Christianity. You see, modern Christianity is in the mess it's in for many of reasons, but I believe this is one of the reasons. You see, we have men that don't take the role of spiritual leadership in the church seriously. They don't take learning God's Word seriously. And if God's going to call a pastor or a bishop or an elder, it's going to be a man. But men don't take it serious. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 11 that when he was a child, he spake as a child, he understood as a child, he thought as a child, but when he became a man, he put away childish things. 
And the sad reality is that we have childish men in the church. So you didn't think I was going to spin it that way, did you? We have childish men in the church that don't take spiritual leadership and the Word of God and the ministry seriously. But let me tell you what else we have in the church. We have usurping women in the church, not in this church. We have women that usurp authority and bring themselves into positions that God never intended for them. This will get all the hits on YouTube later. By the way, that word usurp authority, as we see in the scriptures, when, when, when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, you know, it's not for a woman to teach or usurp authority in the church, that phrase usurp authority is one who does a thing by themselves. In other words, they take on that authority that has not been transferred to them. They do that by themselves. The way that that authority is transferred is through the laying on of hands, by the way. And so what is Jezebel doing, man? Well, she's, she has a position of authority. She's teaching, but what is she teaching? She's teaching God's servants to eat things offered to idols. See, she's teaching something that would cause someone to be condemned and damned by putting something in their mouth. More on that next week. And then the third thing that she's doing is she's seducing God's servants. She's seducing God's servants. She's seducing them to commit fornication. Are you kidding me? <laughs> in the church. What in the world? Let me, let me give you a one-minute overview of what God says about fornication in the Bible. Because I don't want you to hear my words about it. I want you to hear what God's words say about it. Here's what God says about fornication in the Bible. Number one, he says to abstain from it. Acts chapter 15 and verse 29, that you abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. God says you are to be abstaining from fornication. Number two, you are to keep from it. Acts 21 and verse 25, as they're writing to these Gentiles that have believed, they said, listen, don't eat things offered to idols and don't commit fornication. Keep from it. You're to flee from it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18. Very simple. Flee fornication. And every sin that a man doeth is without the body or outside the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. God says we're to avoid it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. And I don't think I need to define what we're talking about i think we understand it god says it's to be avoided we don't need to commit it first corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8 neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and they're filling one day three and twenty thousand god says don't let it once be named among you ephesians 5 and verse 3 but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as becometh saints any saints in the house? Three? Three saints in the house? We'll, we'll give you a chance to get saved in just a minute. But I'm telling you right now, the standard that God has for fornication is don't let it be named once. That's his standard. He hates it. God says to mortify it. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Therefore mortify, your, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. 
fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says to abstain from it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God wants you set apart and holy for His purpose and for His use. And so if you want to see that accomplished, you have to abstain from fornication. So listen, God is against physical fornication, but let me just tell you, He is just as much against spiritual fornication. He is just as much against spiritual fornication. And this woman, this Jezebel, had crept into the church and now has a position of authority, and she's teaching and she's seducing God's people not only to eat things that aren't right, but to commit fornication because basically they're adhering to false doctrine. You say, well, that seems much less severe than physical fornication. Well, get this key in your notes. It's on the back. It's a bad day when we got notes on the back, by the way. Where physical fornication will destroy your body, spiritual fornication will damn your soul. And God is trying to warn those in the church at Thyatira, and God is trying to warn those of us that are saints in Huntsville, Alabama, we had better be careful what kind of woman we are allowing to have influence in our life. We don't have the time, but Proverbs 7 reveals for us this woman called a strange woman. And when you read Proverbs 7, verses 4 to 23, this, this strange woman, this harlot woman, seduces a man physically into her bed. And she wounds him and destroys his body. And man, let, let me just tell you, Jezebel is a false religious system. And listen, she, she seduces men spiritually to the wounding and destruction of their souls. What you believe matters. What you believe matters. And who's declaring that truth matters, for the record. That religious system was called the doctrine of Balaam. Let me close with this and we're done. Can you imagine? I mean, I mean listen, could you imagine being in Thyatira? And the person that's in the, the seat of authority that's teaching is also the one seducing the saints of God to sin against God. How do you, how do you, how do you overcome that? Well, you stick to the book. And, and, and I'll, I will have you just look at that last verse and then we'll close our Bibles. But, but can I just tell you, there were some people in Thyatira that in the midst of complete, just un- unrealistic circumstance. I can't even imagine what that had to be like. But there were some people in that church that of, of whom Christ spoke, and he said, you know what, some of you in Thyatira have not had this doctrine, and you've not known the depths of Satan. You see, not everybody bought into what Jezebel was teaching. Not everybody was swayed into committing fornication. Not everyone was fooled into things, eating things offered to idols. There were some people in Thyatira that just never had that doctrine. They didn't know the, the depths of Satan. They rejected it, and they were never part of that religious system. And can I just tell you that in history, when Satan set up his false religious system through Constantine and through a political religious system through Rome, 
not everybody joined it. Not everybody was a part of it. And, and we'll talk in church history about the Reformation and people that broke away from that system and, and all that's coming. But I want you to understand that there's people in history that were never part of that. They were never part of it because they recognized it for what it was. They kept themselves pure before the Lord. Okay, so what can we take away from this for our lives? Well, number one, I think we need to look at our life and look at our church and say, what would God commend about us? And specifically, would he look at our works and say that our last works are more than our first? Or are we getting weary in well-doing? And the second thing I would ask us is, when God looks at our life, would there be some things that he needs to correct? In other words, there may be some of us who have allowed some things in our life that are absolutely affecting and destroying our relationship with God. Number one, if you're fornicating, you don't have a right relationship with God. And it's affecting your life. And you say, well, I've never followed through with the act, but I just watch it online. You are absolutely destroying your relationship with God. And you're absolutely destroying your relationship with your spouse. And it will affect your body. And it'll affect this body, for the record. It'll affect this body. If, If physical fornication is a part of your life, just like Jezebel, God's call to you is to repent. And, and this morning, if there's things in your life that have become idols in your life, that that is the thing that you worship, well, God wants you to repent. He gave even Jezebel, and that blows my mind. He gave her space to repent of her fornication. But the Bible says that she didn't. You don't have to make that mistake. You don't have to make that mistake. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we we trust that, Lord, you've landed your word exactly where it needed to land in our heart and life today.